It's midnight, the podcasting hour. It's PJ Frightful here, just for the moment. I had planned another terrifying tale to set the mood for this episode. Something really scary. You wouldn't be able to sleep afterwards. But Ryan Daly said he had an important announcement to make before the show begins, so I yield my usual intro spot to him. But don't worry, I'll make him pay for it, trust me. And I'll be back again next time. Okay, you greedy bastard, the mic is yours. Thank thank you. Hi guys, it's Ryan. I wanted to pop in and mention something sort of near and dear to this podcast before you hear the episode proper. This is a Swamp Thing episode. Ben Avery and I discussed the first two issues of the Swamp Thing series from 1972. We recorded this episode on January 29th, and as you will hear, we spent most of our time gushing over Bernie Wrightson's art. So, it was kind of a body blow the very next day to read a Facebook post from Wrightson's wife about the unfortunate state of his health. The letter from Liz Wrightson, which also appears on the website BernieWrightson.com, reads as follows. Dear fans and friends, I apologize for our silence for the past few months. Last November, Bernie began failing again and having obvious problems with perception. He had to undergo yet another brain surgery to relieve bleeding, and then spend several weeks undergoing inpatient rehabilitation. Unfortunately, it appears that he has lasting damage. He has extremely limited function on his left side, and is unable to walk or reliably use his left hand, among other limitations. We have had to come to the sad conclusion that he is now effectively retired. He will produce no new art, and he is unable to attend conventions. Should this situation change, I will happily announce it here. He can still sign his name, in fact he was signing Kickstarter prints in the hospital, and is otherwise pretty healthy and has good cognition. We expect to continue releasing signed prints and offering occasional pieces of art for sale from the collection that remains. We both thank all of you for your continuing support and good wishes. All the best, Liz and Bernie Wrightson. So, some really sad news. Although, thankfully, blessedly, Bernie is still alive. Lately, any time I've gotten bad news about one of my artistic heroes, it's after he or she has died. That is not the case here. Bernie is alive, but his career as a professional artist, from the sounds of things, is over. And that really sucks. I came to appreciate and truly adore Wrightson's art fairly recently. I probably first discovered him with the story Batman the Cult, then an illustrated version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and somewhere kind of in the ether just absorbing some of his classic horror covers, either reprinted or online. But I didn't really become a Bernie Wrightson fan until I started to read the original Swamp Thing stories, and that didn't begin until last summer. I've told the story before, but I went to Boston Comic-Con in 2016, and I saw him there selling some black-and-white Swamp Thing and Batman pieces, and I wanted one but I also really wanted a comic signed by him. I knew of his legendary status, and I just decided then and there that I wanted his name on something I could hold and read. 
so I found a vendor on the floor who was selling a copy of the DC Special Series issue that collected Swamp Thing issues 1 and 2. And I bought it, and I got Bernie to sign it, and I also bought one of the Swamp Thing illustrations he had on his table, and he signed that too. And I just talked to him briefly, praised his work, and felt okay with that. And that night, I read Swamp Thing. And just from those first two issues that Ben and I are going to talk about in a couple of minutes, Bernie Wrightson vaulted to the upper echelon of my favorite comic book artists. And I told myself, if he comes back to Boston next year, I am going to have him sign so many books, and I'm going to have so many questions for him, and maybe, who knows, interview him for this podcast. But it doesn't sound like that is ever going to happen, which sucks. But, I mean, in the big picture... That is me complaining that I won't get a third autograph from the man while I should be grateful he's still alive. And I am, truly. I want him to be healthy, I want him to improve, and I want him to produce more art. But if that doesn't happen, we have what we have. And that is an extraordinary body of work that I will continue to gush over in future episodes of this podcast. That is all for this announcement. I just wanted to make people aware of what was going on with Wrightson. The message from his wife didn't mention anything about donations to support him or anything. The store attached to his website is down currently, so I don't know when you'll be able to buy new prints from his collection. But if you do get that chance someday, I recommend going for it. Anyway, you didn't tune into this podcast to hear about some guy's failing health. You tuned in to hear about some guy becoming a hideous, inhuman muck monster. So, let's get to the good part. Hello and welcome to another episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly and I'm joined again by one of my semi-permanent co-hosts, Ben Avery. How are you, Ben? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm really happy to talk to you again. And folks, if you're listening and if Ben is on the show, you can be pretty confident that we're talking about Swamp Thing. In fact, we are kicking off our coverage of Swamp Thing's first ongoing series that began in 1972. But before we dive into that, it's been a couple months since Ben was here. So Ben, how were your holidays? They were pretty good. They were pretty good. And I'm just I I've been enjoying jumping back into the whole Swamp Thing thing. I've been reading a bunch of other comics that we're not going to cover anytime soon, like later, 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 like from 2015, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's it's been fun. I'm just getting over a cold. It sounds like I'm recovering a little better than, than maybe you are. But uh, it's been a good couple of months, and um, I am working on a project right now that will be a part of the Comic Book Time Machine. But it'll be going hand in hand with what you're doing here with Swamp Thing, mm. and it's it's not exactly. It's not just a man thing centric thing. It's going to be a swamp monster centric thing, but uh, I'm excited to get it out there. And I'm not sure if it'll come out before or after this episode airs. I'm not sure when you're putting this one out, but that's something I've been working on. And I've also been working very hard now that I know what your tone is like to make it have a a very different tone. Mm -hmm. And I found some things that I'm really excited to do. So I swear, I I don't leave it at that. Uh, I no, I, I want it to be different. I want it to be yeah. completely different so that it's not like, oh, you're just doing the same thing, only a little different. You know, like, no, no, I want this to be, you know, very different. 
But um, I'm excited to hear it. Now that I've heard the other episodes of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, you've got a really unique thing going here. There's some fun stuff. That's what I'm. That's what I'm, I'm enjoying it. For. Yeah. And and I yeah. I did make the announcement on the last episode that things are going to have to change um, schedule wise uh, with the baby on the way. I don't know what our segments will look like after the summer, but I, I at least I, I really want to crunch them and make sure that we get through at least the first ten issues of Swamp Thing to cover the rights and stuff, and then if we can finish up Ween's run with just the three issues after that. Whether or not I ever do another Swamp Thing story after that, I don't know. Um, sure, certainly you're free to do whatever you want <laughs> with the character on your show too. Any, anybody else who's listening, there, I always I made the statement way back when, but I. I I kind of say it again, like I, I we don't we don't own these characters. We don't have any proprietary claim to covering these on a podcast. Like if, if somebody else wants to do a Swamp Thing podcast, go go. You have my blessing, and and I will listen to the first episode and give it a shot. Well, and like I said, I'm just excited that I'm do, doing this podcast, <laughs> so I can just say, hey, Swamp Thing over there. You know, yeah. I get to talk about it. And as I said before, I don't have to edit it. So <laughs> right, you know, bonus right there too. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, back on episode two, we reviewed the short story Swamp Thing, published in House of Secrets issue 92 in 1971. We raved about how good the story is, and by all accounts, we were not alone. Fans loved the story. According to a write-up on the back page of DC Special Series issue 2, the short story Swamp Thing resulted in the largest avalanche of mail that any mystery gothic story had ever received. With so much praise for the story, DC enlisted the original creative team of writer Len Wein, artist Bernie Wrightson, and editor Joe Orlando to adapt the eight-page gothic horror story into a full-length ongoing series. But it would take more than a year for Swamp Thing issue 1 to come out, and in that time, as we discussed back on episode 2, some stuff happened, including the creation of Man-Thing over at Marvel Comics. Now, as we said, the first appearance of Man-Thing and the first appearance of Swamp Thing weren't so similar that you could accuse either story of ripping off the other. But then, Len Wein, who created Swamp Thing, was hired to write the next appearance of Man-Thing, which did not get published when and where he thought it would, so it's possible he assumed the Man-Thing character was mothballed over at Marvel. And that might have made it easier to lift major elements of Man-Thing's origin and graft them onto the new version of Swamp Thing that he began to develop. Because, as we'll see this episode, the Swamp Thing we get in the ongoing series is quite different from the original. Ben, any other thoughts on this transitional phase of Swamp Thing or the comparisons to Man-Thing that we brought up last time? Yeah, well, the comparisons to Man-Thing, I think I'll wait until after we've talked about (laughs) the first issue because it'll be easier then to talk about those comparisons, but there's a lot. <laughs> there's Now, and some of it you could say is coincidental, easily. Some of you could say is just part of the genre, part of what they're doing. And part of it you could say, how are they not copying? But I think we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, but as far as the year in between, though, um, that was mainly because Bernie writes and, and Len Wein didn't want to do anything to water down what they had done with the story. They liked that story so much. It was precious to them as well. And so when uh, Carmen Infantino came to them and said, man, we, we they, they, had, they had outsold Superman. The House of Mysteries issue with Swamp Thing outsold Superman. And he said that he wanted to do an ongoing series. And they said no. 
And the way he said it in the in an interview with that in that Swamp Men mm-hmm. uh, book that I was talking about last time was he said Bernie and I were young and boy were we foolish, <laughs> you know, and, but they didn't want to spoil it. It meant to, a lot to them, and so they didn't want to mess with it. But then a year later, uh, the way Len Weems said it is uh, a year later. I was sitting around one day in my office and thought, schmuck, why didn't you do something like it? You don't have to do anything that undercuts the original story. Just start over again. And then he says, <laughs> I spoke with Joe on a Friday, Joe Orlando called Bernie on that Saturday and said, do you want to do it as a series? Bernie didn't want to, but then Len Wein said, well, we'll just do something similar with a basic concept, but not the same thing. So Bernie said, okay, cool. And then they went into Joe's office on Monday and said, okay, we're here. Let's do a book. And and they did. So... <laughs> And the the three of them, then they worked on it Marvel style, which is really interesting. In that interview, they talk about the process that they went through where they would brainstorm the story together. And as Len Wein is kind of brainstorming and throwing out dialogue bits and stuff like that, Bernie writes in his sketching pages and Joe Orlando is sitting there as well. And he's throwing in some things. And apparently it was Joe Orlando who came up with the, the element of the bio-restorative formula that we're going to be talking about. But yeah, it was and and Len Wein pretty clearly wanted to know or wanted to do exactly uh, what he did from day one as far as what the first four or five issues mm-hmm. ended up looking like. And it was he had a pretty clear definition w- where he wanted to go from from the beginning there. So, yeah, it's again, if you're into this stuff, buy this book, this Swamp Men. It has really, really interesting interviews, gets in a lot of the creative process, a lot of the history that they have with comics in general and uh, it's it's really, really interesting. But yeah, that's what happened in that year is basically it took him a year to figure out, wait, <laughs> we don't have to continue from that story. Maybe we were dumb to say no to Carmine Infantino and turned out the world. But <laughs> it's interesting that you said that they kind of did it Marvel style because that actually addresses one of the things that I was going to bring up when we talk about uh, issue two, which was some of the designs of like the Unmen and things like that, that I was kind of thinking, this feels like it's part of the story just because Wrightson wanted to draw something like this. They talk about that in the in the book, too, a little yeah. bit. And, yeah, it's definitely an element. But then also, you know, we'll get into it uh, with issue three and four more than that. But issue two that we're going to talk about, he's wanted to do these classic horror tropes. And mm-hmm. so issue two is kind of the Island of Dr. Moreau kind mm-hmm. of trope. And, you know, issue one is obviously retelling a new origin. Right. But um, once we get into issues three and four and five, you're going to see even more like right, right. Every pretty trophy. specific things that they're getting into. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the one other thing that I, I found this kind of fascinating, just thinking about the landscape of comics today versus what they were like at this time. Uh, so I just kind of I looked at, at Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And DC published 37 comics with October cover dates in 1972. Of those 37 comics, seven were horror-related comics. It was Ghosts, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Secrets of Sinister House, Swamp Thing, Unexpected, and The Witching Hour. That's like 20% of their output that month (laughs) was horror comics. Can you – like today, 30% of their output is Batman comics. It's like, can you imagine? Can you imagine that happening today? Well, but how much of that was even just uh, anthology comics? Sure. Yeah. A bunch of those titles. Yeah. They all were, except for Swamp Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge change in what we have now, where you have random anthology things maybe popping up from some sort of small press. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. We're going to take a short promo break. When we come back, Swamp Thing issue one. Don't go away. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. 
Yeah. yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. Swamp Thing Issue 1 is cover dated October slash November of 1972, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the actual factual on sale date was August 10th, 1972. The cover, by Bernie Wrightson, sported a whopping 20 cent price tag. Can you believe it? (laughs) Wrightson's cover shows... (laughs) Wrightson's cover shows the titular swamp creature emerging from the muck to confront a man in a suit holding a woman at gunpoint. What do you think of this cover? Look, I'm I'm probably never, ever going to say anything bad about Bernie Wrightson covers ever. <laughs> this is wonderful. I mean, it, this is full of motion. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, Swamp Thing is rising from the murky depths and the motion of his movement is he's bursting up and basically the guy and the girl – they're both terrified, <laughs> and she's not terrified by the gun. <laughs> yeah. I had this, this weird sort of cognitive dissonance the first time I saw the cover and like really looked at it because like, this does not seem like a typical comic book cover for a first issue because we don't get a good hero shot of Swamp Thing. And then I kind of had to reorient myself and think, well, okay, this isn't a typical comic because it's not a superhero comic. And I we tend to think of that as what the genre, what the medium mm-hmm. is. We, we lump it in with that the superhero genre, but it's really not. And it's it, like this reminds me very much of one of uh, Wrightson's other covers for House of Mystery issue 236, which has like basically a corpse-like face coming out of muck as a man and a woman are kind of struggling in the background. It's almost the same type of layout uh, or angle, except instead of just being like a sort of skeletal face, uh-huh. it's the Swamp Thing. But he is kind of looking off to the side. He, he's kind of t- with his back to us. Yeah, like, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah. that – yeah, huh. That's a really cool cover too, though. Oh, oh no, yeah, it's gorgeous. So I, I'm not accusing him of swiping himself, but I guess if you do that, it's fine. But it's just they say yeah. if you're going to steal, steal from the best. But <laughs> when you're the best, who do you steal from? You know, I guess yourself. Yeah, good point. Good question. Um, yeah, that, that was just my only thing. My first thought was just, well, this doesn't seem like a normal number one cover. But then I was like, but this isn't like a normal number one. It's, and, but you said at the beginning, I, I will never knock this. I will never knock any of Wrightson's work on Swamp Thing because it is gorgeous. So, Well, it's interesting you put it the way you put it, though, where you're saying it's not a hero shot. Because this cover, if you're looking at it out of context, it looks like the monster is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Or it's a bad guy, or it's a, it's a, I shouldn't say a bad guy, it's a, um, the threat. Uh, a representation of righteous judgment coming down on this guy with the gun, you know, who's threatening this woman. Uh, the other thing I'd say is the cover doesn't exactly show what's happening inside. <laughs> it's, it's a little, little misleading, mm-hmm. yeah. but only a little. The story, Dark Genesis, is written by Len Wein, edited by Joe Orlando, and illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. The bayou is a primordial world of animal and vegetable life, but on this dark and foreboding night, the natural world is interrupted by the presence of a car driving through the marshland. The car pulls up to a barn hidden from civilization by the swampy wilderness. Unseen by anyone in the car, a creature of vaguely human shape watches the car and thinks, They will return, those who killed me and I will be waiting. Go back several days to when the swamp is lit by sun and blue skies. 
The same car pulls up to the barn, and Federal Agent Lieutenant Matt Cable delivers Doctors Alec and Linda Holland to their new home and laboratory. Cable apologizes to the husband and wife scientists for the accommodations, but the U.S. government is eager to keep the Hollands' cutting-edge research into biorestorative formulas a secret, especially from sinister agents who may want to steal their work. Cable tells the Hollands the house will be under regular patrol and then leaves the doctors to their work. Alec and his wife enter the barn, the upper levels of which have been converted to the living quarters, while the stable serves as their lab. A few nights later, Alec Holland thinks his biorestorative formula may be ready. They test it, and a single drop of the formula sprouts into a vegetation the size of a cactus. The Holland's formula could create lush, thriving gardens in barren deserts. So long, famine. So long, world hunger. So long, deforestation. The ramifications of the biorestorative formula are revolutionary. And that's when Alec and Linda hear a knock at the door. But it's not Matt Cable or the cops come to visit. It's a man named Ferret and two of his cronies. Ferret represents an organization very eager to acquire Holland's bio-restorative formula, so eager that they're willing to cut him a blank check for exclusive rights to the product. Alec doesn't like Ferret's attitude and refuses to sell. Ferret tells his man Bruno to convince the doctor to change his mind. But before Bruno can lay his massive hands on Holland, the patrol car approaches the house. Ferret warns the husband and wife scientists that they'll be back, and the Hollands had better rethink their answer. A short time later, Cable checks on the Hollands, having heard about another car in the area. Alec tells the agent that they were braced by three gangster movie rejects, and Cable tells Alec and Linda not to take their threat lightly. He reiterates how profound the biorestorative formula could be on the global stage. The country that controls the formula could control the shape of the world. Governments and organizations would pay anything to acquire the formula, and they would just as easily kill anyone who stood in their way, or to simply keep the formula out of their enemy's hands. Put it another way, Alec Holland may be the most wanted man on the planet and the biggest target. A few minutes after Cable drives off, Linda hears a scratching at the barn door. Alec grabs a rifle and they cautiously go to the door, but when they open it, they find only a stray dog standing outside. Linda is overcome with love for the dog and asks Alec if they can keep it. He hates the idea. The hound is dirty, probably infested with fleas. It'll be a distraction from their work. Of course, none of this matters to Linda, and one look in her eyes melts Alec's heart and he agrees they can keep the dog. Neither of them suspects the dog is carrying a microtransceiver in his head, a transceiver broadcasting their voices to a surveillance agent codenamed Louisiana Blue. Agent Blue contacts his boss, Mr. E, to tell him they can eavesdrop on the Hollands. Mr. E, who represents a mysterious group called the Conclave, tells his agent to send Ferret back to the Hollands to repeat his offer. And if they can't get the biorestorative formula, they must destroy it, and Alec and Linda Holland too. Later, Ferret and his men return to the barn house, but Alec answers the door with his rifle pointed at Ferret and threatens to call the police. Bruno disarms Alec and knocks the scientist out cold. When Alec regains consciousness, Ferret and his men are gone, but they left a package behind, taped to the underside of one of the lab tables. A ticking time bomb. Desperately, Alec reaches for the bomb, hoping to defuse it, but he's far too late. With a flash and a thunderous warroom, the bomb explodes. Miraculously, Alec survives the initial blast, even as the heat of flames ripped the flesh from his body. Then glass vials shatter and shower him with every unnamed chemical in the lab. He runs from the burning barn, a fiery grotesque streaking through the woods until he plunges into the swamp and disappears. 
A few days later, a funeral is held for Alec Holland, though his body can hardly be laid to rest as no trace of him was ever found. Linda Holland mourns her husband beside her new dog and Lieutenant Cable. After the funeral, Cable brings her back to the house in the swamp, which has been rebuilt good as new. With Alec dead, Linda is the only one who can continue and complete their research, her grieving be damned. As the two of them go inside, it begins to rain, and Cable thinks it's a dark and portentous rain, the kind that seems like the sky is weeping. As the rain pours down on the swamp, something stirs beneath the water's surface. Something alive, barely, claws its way to the bank. Something climbs up and stands on two legs. Something that stares at its own hands and arms and sees only roots and moss where it used to see flesh. To quote the story on page 15, in that frightening, mind-shattering second, knows what it has become. A muck-encrusted, shambling mockery of life. A twisted caricature of humanity that can only be called Swamp Thing. The Swamp Thing that used to be Alec Holland, that still somehow is able to think and process like the scientist, reasons that in that moment when the bomb exploded, his body was covered by the bio-restorative formula. The formula must have mixed with the other chemicals in the lab, as well as the raw matter of the swamp, and all of it turned him into this monstrosity. He wanders back to the house and sees the lights on. His beloved wife Linda must be inside, he thinks. Maybe she can help him reverse the process. But when Swamp Thing approaches the barn, he catches his reflection in the window and lets out an inhuman howl. Matt Cable goes outside to investigate the noise but finds nothing. The Swamp Thing has returned to the shadows of the woods. The thing that used to be Alec Holland doesn't want his wife to see him as he currently is, but he also knows that Ferret and his men will return for her eventually, and when they do, the Swamp Thing will be waiting for them. Back at the barn, the dog suddenly bolts out the door and runs into the wilderness, obeying the commands of the voice in his head. Cable tells Linda to lock the door behind him and goes off to find the dog. While he's circling the house, he finds someone else's footprints. But before he can act, Ferret's enforcer Bruno knocks him out. Then Ferret and his men break into the barn to get the formula and Linda. Swamp Thing is brooding alone when he hears the anxious howl of Linda's dog, trapped in quicksand. Swamp Thing climbs in and rescues the dog, but then his heart falls as he hears a gunshot ring out through the swamp. He rushes back to the house, arriving to find the lab ransacked and his beloved wife murdered. Swamp Thing cradles Linda's body in his arms, blaming himself for failing to protect her. Then he hears the sound of a car engine. Farrah and his men are driving away. Swamp Thing smashes through one of the walls of the barn and races down the road. He emerges from the woods in front of Ferret's car. The killers see the looming monster in their path, and Ferret tells the driver to floor it. But he underestimates Swamp Thing's resolve and brute strength, as the monster slams his powerful fist down on the hood of the car, bringing it to a sudden halt. Ferret flies headfirst through the windshield and slides across the grass. Bruno climbs limply out of the car, horrified at the inhuman thing that attacked them. Swamp Thing is on Bruno in seconds, thinking these men are the reason he's no longer human. Ferret wakes up in time to see the Swamp Thing crush Bruno's skull with his fist. He dares the monster to turn around and face him, even as he draws his gun and fires round after round at the beast. He empties his gun, but still the Swamp Thing closes in on him. Finally, there is nothing left for Ferret to do but scream as Swamp Thing beats him to death. As Ferret's body falls from his hands, the Swamp Thing hopes Linda can rest easier now that her death has been avenged. But abruptly, another gunshot rings out and a bullet chips part of the muck on Swamp Thing's shoulder. He turns to see Matt Cable standing in the rain, still dazed from being hit by a shovel earlier but with his weapon drawn. Cable tells the monster he's under arrest for murder, but Swamp Thing cannot go with Cable, and he cannot explain the situation, so he turns and walks off into the night. 
Cable screams for the monster to stop, to come back. He screams that he'll find out the truth about what happened. The Swamp Thing ignores him, for the only one who can give Cable the answers was Alec Holland. And after tonight, Alec Holland is dead. As the Swamp Thing wanders off into the dark, this scene is reflected in a mystical mirror in some castle halfway around the world. A nasty-looking hand points to the Swamp Thing in the mirror and tells his audience of demonic little creatures that they must capture the Swamp Thing and bring him to this mysterious master. The story ends with the caption previewing issue 2, Next, The Man Who Wanted Forever. Okay, Ben, what did you think of Swamp Thing issue (laughs) 1? I have a lot of thoughts about Swamp Thing issue one, and some of them come down to the man thing, Swamp Thing conversation, and some of them just come down to the changes and differences from the previous story. Uh, This is a very different story, Mm -hmm. even though it's the same story. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the romance. It's not the gothic romance. It's it's a different genre of story, but it's basically the same. You've got Swamp Thing losing his humanity, losing the woman he loves – in a different way, though. And in some ways, this is not as powerful of a story. But at the same time, for what it is, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, it being this kind of monster action horror story. And again, Bernie Wrightson, he elevates it, I think. Uh, without him, I don't think it would have nearly the impact. But yeah, and, and of course, obviously, the the writing with Len Wein as well. But everything comes together. I mean, even the lettering yeah. Uh, yeah. really, really all comes together. And not it's not normally something you notice unless the letterer does something funky. Well, the letter is doing stuff funky, you know, <laughs> Gaspar or Jasper Saladino. I think Gaspar. Who, Gaspar, who did the lettering for this. And yeah, uh, even when Swamp Thing is thinking, his thoughts are dripping mm-hmm. in, his, in his thought clouds. There's only one line, I think, that he speaks. And that's that stop when he's in front of the car. That's, I think that's the only line he actually speaks. The rest of it, I think, is all in his thoughts. That's actually something that I think we'll be talking about for the first couple, like the first five or six issues, because I think sometimes it's a little bit vague whether he's thinking or speaking, and, and sometimes just like the way the word balloon is shaped. Maybe it's just me. Maybe my reading of it, but there were times where I was confused, where I was like, "Do the other people hear what he's thinking or saying in the scene?" And but yeah, I, I think you're right in this case that that's the only thing that he speaks out loud in this one. Oh no, there is another one. He 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 screams no, and then he screams Linda. Oh yeah yeah yeah. So there are those. Now in in the second issue, he addresses this personally that it's very hard for him to speak. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. oh, he also does a he has a huh. So there's that too. <laughs> Interesting that you caught like. The story is a little bit less emotional than that original eight-pager, and I think you're right. Like, I think maybe the pathos and the torment was delivered a little bit more exactly in that one, perhaps by necessity because it it was such a short story. Maybe also because that was just meant to be one finite thing and this one is meant to continue, or maybe they just captured lightning in a bottle and they did it perfectly the first time around and, and it was harder to replicate. Um, or, I think that or, might or be maybe it. it. It also might have to do with the, the tone and the atmosphere of that story. You're right. This one is not necessarily a gothic romance sort of Victorian setting. Uh, we, we do have a different world here. It's, it's a monster action story, but then it's also a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But that's because it's a monster action story. <laughs> Yeah. Although how many superhero stories you know begin with tragedy as well? Um, Quite a few. And actually, that was some. I mean, I did fifty-four episodes of a Secret Origins podcast, and I never got to talk about Swamp Thing. But this type of origin story, and it, it's the same thing for Man Thing. I love this idea. I love this origin plot 
of the betrayal and creating like this formula out in the woods, the, the explosion, the fire, the transformation and everything like that. And I actually just thinking about it again today for the first time, I thought of something. Did you ever see the movie Dark Man? Yeah, yeah. The Sam Raimi movie with like Liam Neeson like in 1990. That sort of has the same type of origin. He's creating some formula. These evil gangster baddie guys, mm-hmm. whatever, like break into his lab. They kill his lab partner in front of him. They torture him. They leave him to die. There's an explosion and that turns him into the hero that he becomes. And I, I was just starting to wonder, you know, I wonder if Sam Raimi or whoever the screenwriter was were thinking about Man-Thing or Swamp-Thing at the time that they wrote that, so – yeah, I I don't know because to me, even though these two stories are very similar and, and that's one of the similarities, that's one of the very forgivable similarities because I won't say it's cliche, but it's really close. <laughs> if it's not cliche, it's like knocking at cliche's door and saying, can I come in and be you? <laughs> um, it, it's just it, it's close. And it's it's just the idea of, you know, this man is out there doing something for good. And then it blows up in his face, literally, and it transforms him. And, and that's a ton of different horror stories. And, you know, Darkman, I hadn't even thought of, but looking at the page right now of, of uh, the transformation or the explosion anyway, that very much reminds me of the Darkman explosion. And that scene is such a powerful scene, like the shape of him just sort of running out on flames, screaming, oh, my God, oh, my dear, dear God. Like, was this a code approved book? Were they allowed to do that? I don't know. Like, there's just yeah, something- no, the, he is on fire. And later on, when Linda dies, that's off panel. You know, like it's just a blam that Swamp Thing hears when you see her, the bad guys are with her. And then when you see her next, she's just laying on the ground in a bloodless death pose. But mm-hmm. this is pretty brutal. There's definitely emotion there on that panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm not saying that this is emotionless. It's just less impactful in, in the emotion. And I'm not sure exactly what it is other than I think maybe the stakes are different. He dies first, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, or doesn't die. But he, he goes first. But they're on good terms. You yeah. know, he, has, he hasn't lost her to anyone else when he comes and sees her. And then I think the other thing is she survives the story in the first one. And that's kind of the tragedy is that as he comes and she recognizes that he's not all monster, but doesn't recognize that he is her her uh, Alex. You know, mm-hmm. it's that's the tragedy there is that she he can never be with her, even though she's still alive here. The tragedy is she's going to be killed. You know, and it's a little more of a cliche tragedy. I never thought of that, but maybe that is. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. But you're right. And maybe that is the thing like her death. I don't think has the emotional weight that it should because it really doesn't change his circumstances or anything. He's already become the monster. He already Mm -hmm. has a reason to go after Farrah and the bad guys. Like, he could have gone off and attacked them for killing him, essentially. And he still would have been tortured by the fact that he can't look his wife in the eye. He He can't ever face her because she would reject him, or at least he thinks she would. So maybe there wasn't a reason to kill her in the story, and maybe that's why it doesn't have that resonance that the first story had, that tragedy. Yeah, I think the reason to kill her in this story is to get her out of the way and just completely get rid of any strings of attachment that he might have, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's one more nail in the coffin of his humanity, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that connection. If she had remained alive, then a lot of future stories would have been about him trying to convince her that he's still Alec Holland. Right. Or, or um, and maybe trying a, to work on a cure. Yeah. And maybe that wouldn't have been a bad thing, but it, it would have happened that way. And so we get a different thing here. 
I guess the alternative would have been having them in the barn together when they were attacked and having her killed and then the explosion that turns in, like having that, them die in the same situation. But then the question is, how do you get Farrah and the other guys back to the swamp for him to exact his revenge? Yeah. yeah. Like, what's their motivation for coming back? Unless, unless they think that the formula was left behind. But yeah, that doesn't, so... A few other things, like uh, thinking about Wrightson's art, and this was just something that else that I picked up that I really love, like his depiction of Holland, he's not like your conventional comic book leading man action hero that you would think. Like he doesn't have a Kurt Swan face. You know, he has, he's, he's more of a, like an Ichabod crane to a type. He, you know, he's got like some wrinkles, <laughs> like some panels. He almost has like a bit of a schnoz. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a face full of character, but it's not leading man superhero face, which is fine because that's not who he is and that's not who he's going to be. So I just, I like that. Yeah. Now his look changes from this issue to next in one edition that I have, which is the uh, DC special series mm-hmm. number two. That's what I've got. Yeah. Yeah. That includes the two. And I would say that's the way to read it. Mm-hmm. You get the pulpy, the newsprint pages and that sort of thing. But in the uh, collected edition, the Roots of the Swamp thing, graphic novel that they did, he is blonde in that because later on he's blonde in issue two. Huh. And so I wonder if there's other things that they've done some color correction with. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit weird. And Actually, it corrects something that I had a problem with because I'm wondering, well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it in issue two. Yeah. But um, he he looks a little more, I don't know, blonde, blue eyed, all American hero in the, <laughs> in that reprint than he does in this one. I uh, about Crane. That's a good that's a good example. I've also got a digital copy from Comixology, and I bet that's taken because that is color corrected. I bet that's taken from the more recent collection. Yeah. Speaking of these, um, like I had a list of all of the places where this story has been reprinted. Going in chronological order, it was reprinted in DC Special Series Issue 2 in 1977. That collects issues 1 and 2 of the series. And I actually have that copy signed by Bernie Wrightson. I got him at uh, Boston Comic Con last year. Oh, man. Um, it was collected in Roots of the Swamp Thing Issue 1. That was 1986. That collected the first two issues on Baxter paper. Uh, Swamp Thing Dark Genesis trade paperback in 1992. Secrets of the Swamp Thing trade paperback in 2005. That was a digest-sized collection that I actually got from Rob Kelly. And then Roots oh, of the really? Swamp Yeah. Roots of the Swamp Thing hardcover in 2009. And then the Roots of the Swamp Thing trade paperback version of that in 2012. Yeah, it's not hard to find this story. <laughs> No, it is not. Not hard at all. Yeah. It's funny. Like you mentioned that Ween kind of had a a, more of a long game. Like he knew what he was going to do for almost like the first half year of this because they seed the Conclave and Mr. E early on in this issue. But then that's not the mystery man that we get at the end of the issue. So there's sort of these two mysterious shadowy figures and one seems to have more of this like kind of demonic alchemical like approach and one is sort of more of like a a business person but he does have like this weird simian creature and um, Mr. E, I I love his office. He's got like candles that have like – they look like coiled snakes yeah, with candles on their heads. It's crazy. Yeah, well, every you know, every good villain has some sort of simian chimpanzee type <laughs> pet that he can just. It is weird. It is very strange, and he's just like petting the chimpanzee or whatever this thing is. Uh, he's just sitting there petting it, stroking it, you know, it, like it's a, a Bond villain's cat or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what he reminds me. He's he's more of the the spy thriller kind of villain. And then you have on that last panel, like you said, the the kind of demonic hand with demonic creatures that are standing around the mirror. And then you have Matt Cable, too, who is also being set up as as an adversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's playing the long game. 
and they do it in a different way. Like this does not feel as episodic as it could feel. Right. Um, it does still feel episodic once we get into things, but it definitely strings along episode to episode and one episode pushes into the next it more was, so than just, oh, it's the next adventure. It was jarring reading these out of order because my introduction to Swamp Thing was the Alan Moore stuff. And looking at the sort of American Gothic approach and the Southern like world building that he was doing in the natural world with the elemental gods and everything, and then getting to this run where it's just horror trope after horror trope after horror trope, and mm-hmm. just like spoilers, but you know, like next issue we'll see they take him out of the swamp quickly, and, and then it's like oh. all of these all of these other things going on. It's like wow, this is not what I expected, but uh, it's still it's playing into all of these things that I love about horror stories and comics, so it's good. Um, looking at the art again, the page uh, in my book, it's page 12 and page 14 and 15. I love the dichotomy there of the explosion. And then he's on fire running through the swamp and you know falls into the mud. When he rises out of the mud, it's raining. Mm-hmm. And it's just this kind of cool. When I say cool, I mean, but, you know, temperature wise, right, you know, right, right. cool moment in the swamp. And he's just rising out from the mud and it's just darker. It's bluer. Those three pages just really make the comic for me. Uh, You know, if I had any complaints, and I do have some complaints about some of the story stuff that's going on, but there's no complaints here. Like, this is just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful artwork, beautiful monster work. It's it's wonderful. It's the the beautiful grotesquery. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word, grotesquery, but (laughs) if it isn't, it is... It is now. So. <laughs> yeah, you're at like the contrast of the fire and then the rain, um, mm-hmm. and it is a it is a birth scene in a sense. So it's uh, yeah, incredible. yeah, yeah. And, and coalescing with that splash of his face, and it's oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the Academy of Comic Book Arts formed in 1971 uh, to recognize special achievements in the comic book field. In 1972, this story won the award for best individual story. Also that year, Len Wein won the award for Best Writer for his work on Swamp Thing, and Bernie Wrightson won the award for Best Penciler for his work on Swamp Thing. I think it's well-deserved. Well-deserved. You know, we talked about last time how they were using real people as their models. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Kaluta makes a return as a character in this book. Yes. He's the dog. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you look at the dog, you can kind of see the mustache thing going on with its <laughs> maw or whatever. <laughs> okay. But that's that's both Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein uh, collaborate and said, you know, this, that's who he was using as kind of his reference point for the dog. Wow. I wonder yeah. if they ever told him that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Did you have any other big points to discuss? It's mainly the man thing stuff now. Mm-hmm. And just how the difference is. There, there are still some differences, but it is almost the same. Um, you have a betrayal by someone that they care about. Now, in the Man-Thing story, it's a betrayal by Ellen. Mm-hmm. And in the Swamp-Thing story, it's being betrayed by the dog accidentally. The dog doesn't even know that it's doing it, obviously. But they're both working in a distant location in the swamp, working on projects that have both the government's interest and criminal's interest. Both of them, just before death, it's a desperate kind of heroic act, but that ultimately fails. And they both and this is the one thing, the one thing that I I just can't imagine they didn't know they were doing. They both end with the swamp monster stepping in front of a moving vehicle (laughs) and the swamp monster stops the moving. It crashes into the swamp monster and does not, you know, budge the swamp monster. And after that, it's this deadly battle of revenge and and the bad guys die at the swamp monster's hands. 
And so that right there, that's the one thing in Swamp Thing. It's a splash page in Man Thing. It's, you know, like the the fifth panel on the page or whatever. But that's the one thing I'm just like, how could they not have known, especially if Len Wein had been, you know, had worked on that Swamp or that Man Thing number two. He obviously was very, very familiar with that number one story. Uh, He had to have been in order to write the number two story. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing where I'm just like, ah, man. Now, granted, if I ever get around to writing the Swamp Monster story I want to write, it'll have that. that, That'll happen in it. (laughs) Well, yeah, now it's got to. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's directly an homage. If something happens twice, it happens all the time. Exactly, exactly. It's no longer a coincidence. (laughs) It's, It's just part of the universe, universal laws. Yeah, so that's that's the main thing right there that I wanted to get out about the man thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people, uh, we're going to take another promo break, but don't go away because after that, we're going to talk about Swamp Thing Issue 2. Hi, I'm Blaine Dowler, host of Bedtime in the Public Domain. In this podcast series, I'll read bedtime stories from books in the public domain. Each weekday, I'll release one chapter or short story from a selected larger collection. Once the entire book is done... I'll also release an audiobook version, including all chapters of short stories, before taking a few days off to prepare the next series. All stories will be from one of the children's categories from the Project Gutenberg website, because they do an excellent job of editing the content to ensure it's in public domain, and I have neither the time nor expertise required to do that myself. Suggestions for the stories that come next are welcome and encouraged. You can find the show at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Swamp Thing Issue 2 had a December-January 1972 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was October 12th of 1972. Ben, what do you think of this cover? This cover is another Bernie Wrightson cover, so I'm never (laughs) going to say anything bad about it. But this is one that gets into why I love what Bernie Wrightson does. This is the kind of Bernie Wrightson that just really grabs me, where you've got just these grappling grasping creatures battling Mm -hmm. uh and and they're on this kind of wooden i don't know why that thing is there but it's this this wooden uh plank thing that's sticking out a window at the side of a castle and then there's this hooded wizardy kind of guy in the window and it's yeah now this is your hero cover right Mm -hmm. here this is your hero cover swamp thing is a hero fighting monsters on this cover and yeah i i love it i love it Something that uh, I didn't mention the last time, and it's a recurring thing through the Swamp Thing titles, is that the image of the cover is actually more of a squared image because, like, the top third about of the cover is, like, a title piece with just a sort of flat-colored border or, like, wall behind it. Uh, So you get all, like, the the price and the publication info and Mm -hmm. the barcodes and everything. The image itself is actually separated intentionally from the title and everything so there's not like an overlap uh and that was consistent with all the swamp thing covers for the first run while they were working on it so yeah and and that's something that um you'll see in the run but it's also something you'll notice that there's no words on the image at all there's no words on the images and it just lets the image speak for itself now this one says second startling issue right up at the very top you know it's startling but there's nothing on it like inside or you know the monsters aren't like growling and the wizard's not yelling Swamp thing, I will destroy you. You know, it's nothing <laughs> like that. It's just here's the image. We're gonna let it speak for itself. There's this weird trail of smoke that just there's no source for this trail of smoke. It's just there and it adds to the mood. I mean, it's just they're very high up and why is there smoke? Who knows? It doesn't matter. 
because it's just part of the mood, part of the tone, and it's helping draw the eye around that image. And that's something also that Bernie Wrightson is, is really, really good at, is the way he's able to push your eye around the image and and just the curvature of bodies. And, the, the you know, like with the last issue, you had that curvature of the swamp thing in the front there. And then you see that first. Then you see what he's looking at. He's looking at these two people that are on the edge of the swamp. And then you see, you know, the background is just nothing. It's just these kind of tree shapes. And the same thing here. The background is just these castle shape and stone wall. And you, you're drawn to the Swamp Thing first, but then you're also the wizard is is red and Swamp Thing is looking at the wizard. And so your eye is following his eye. And it's great. Yeah. It's great. It's great stuff. Love it so much. So. All right. You ready to tell our listeners what happens in Swamp Thing issue two? Almost. I wanted to talk about one more cover, though, and that is the cover to uh, DC Special Series Volume one, number two, that has those two issues in it. That cover is another – this is my my wallpaper on my computer. Nice. And it has all these unmen, all these creatures, and they're all just kind of writhing around. Swamp Thing is has a criminal by the throat and is getting shot at by either Matt Cable or another criminal or something like that. Uh, it's kind of merging the story from this issue and from the last issue. But again, Bernie Wrightson did this special for this book, this reprint book, and it is an incredible, cool-looking cover. I love it. Yeah. Just yeah. Love it. Yeah, if you if you weren't able to tell, and I will post images of these covers on the uh, on the website, including this one. Um, but it is a wraparound cover that includes the front yes. and back of the issue, so you really get more of the breadth of it. And you're right; it, it looks like he's holding like ferret in his like beating ferret, and you've got cable shooting him from issue one, and then the unmen from issue two on the back. So it is this nice merge. Unfortunately, it does have a text, and it includes like a, a little circular mm-hmm. kind of caption explaining what is in this issue. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. I, I like this. This is what I would have expected from Swamp Thing issue one. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right, cool. All right, so now I'm ready. The Man Who Wanted Forever is written by Len Wein and drawn by Bernie Wrightson, with uh, Joe Orlando acting as editor. Sunlight streams through the trees, shining on the rain-soaked swamp. The rains of the storm are gone, but have not washed away the events of the past as Alec Holland watches Matt Cable and an ambulance crew loading up the dead bodies of Ferret and Bruno, who died not long ago at the hands of Swamp Thing. In those very hands, Swamp Thing tenderly holds the dog that Linda, Alec Holland's wife, had befriended while she was still among the living. As Swamp Thing and the dog watch, he replays the events of the previous night in his mind and his murder of his wife's murderers. But the moment is soon interrupted as dozens of human-ish freaks erupt from the swamp. Monsters with multiple limbs or missing limbs, some with serpentine bodies and others with no bodies at all. These are the Unmen, minions of a mysterious master who has given them one objective, capture Swamp Thing. The battle is brutal and desperate, and one that perhaps Swamp Thing could have won even as they swarm over him. But their mission is to capture, and a multi-limbed, snake-like creature is called into action, a creature with the power to mesmerize. Staring deep into Swamp Thing's eyes, the swamp creature falls to the Unman's power. The Unmen place Swamp Thing on an X-shaped cross, and affixing it to the bottom of their plane, fly away. Matt Cable watches helplessly as he realizes his own quarry has been stolen from him, the beast that murdered the two men in the ambulance. He watches helplessly but refuses to give up searching for the killer from the swamp. 
Mr. E and his organization, the Conclave, the criminals responsible for Alex's accident and Linda's death, are also not going to give up on that count as they spy on Matt Cable through the dog with the listening device embedded in its head. The plane flies over the ocean in an international trek for the unmen and the Swamp Thing. The wooden cross is then placed on an icy lake in the Balkans, and they float him through the menacing maw of a mountain cave where he is transferred to a cart. The misshapen unmen push and pull the cart through the cave and then finally up a mountain path to a gothic castle. But in that castle, Swamp Thing awakens, and taking his captors by surprise, he breaks free, and the battle begins again, this time up the stairs of the castle and out the window to a jutting beam. As far as he is concerned, this is the end for him, but if he's going to fall into the forest far below, he's going to take as many of these things with him as he can. The onslaught, however, is called off by the Unmen's master, a frail, balding man named Arcane. He created the freaks of nature, and he proves to be a sinister-looking but pleasant-acting host with an offer. A bargain. Using science and magic, he will trade bodies with the Swamp Thing, returning Swamp Thing to a healthy human body, and taking on the swamp-like nature of the beast Alec Holland had become. Don't you want to be human? Don't you care? Arcane says. I care, Holland replies. It is indeed a deal Alec cannot refuse. In preparation, Arcane studies Swamp Thing's body, 89 inches tall, 547 pounds, no blood pressure, inhales carbon dioxide and exhales oxygen like a plant. The roots covering his body are alive, but these details are just the facts. This is the body Arcane wants. This is the body Arcane has been looking for. And so Swamp Thing is taken to an unholy ritual centered around a large urn. Arcane has taken care of all the magical details. All Swamp Thing, all Alec Holland has to do is to desire the change, to want it. And want it, Holland does. When the smoke clears, he's human once more. In Arcane, Arcane has taken away the essence of Swamp Thing, and now Arcane is the Swamp Thing. That night, all is right for Alec. All except for one thing, Linda is still gone. Wandering the castle in search of a drink to dull the pain, he happens to overhear Arcane monologuing, telling the Unmen what he plans to do with his new body. For now, he has power. Power for vengeance. Power for destruction of the people living in the village below. And Alec Holland realizes he has just handed this maniac that power. Once more, he runs through the castle halls, returning to where the ritual took place, finding a guard, a massive four-armed Unman. The battle is not one easily won, but Alec Holland strangles the monster. The beast falls, and Alec takes the magical urn, shattering it just as Arcane Swamp Thing arrives to stop him. Slowly, two transformations are undertaken. Holland grows and changes color and becomes once again the muck-encrusted mockery of humanity he was before, while Arcane shrivels up to once more become the aged, frail human he was. Swamp Thing finds himself once more engulfed in a battle against a throng of unmen, tearing at him at Arcane's order, while Arcane escapes up the stairs. Swamp Thing strains to stop him but fails. Arcane then throws himself from a high window, seeming to fall to his death below, and when he does, the unmen stop attacking and follow out the window in a stream like lemmings, leaving Swamp Thing alone in Arcane's castle. Or not so alone as he thinks, as a lanky monster lurks in the shadows, watching Swamp Thing. Very, very nice. Uh, my first thought, and this is just a tiny little bit of minutia, but right there on the title page, it says the saga of the Swamp Thing. And that's mm-hmm. the first time we get that phrase, which has kind of come to dominate a lot of like the Swamp Thing. Like That was the name of the second series, and that was on like a lot of the trades and collections. Saga of the Swamp Thing. It's right there at the beginning of issue two. What did you think of the story? 
<laughs> Again, this is not a perfect story. This is not a perfect story at all. And I think the if I can sum it up in one word, that word is quick. There is a lot of stuff that happens very quickly and a lot of stuff that happens, in my opinion, as someone you know looking at this, what, 40 some years later, mm-hmm. too soon. This story should not have been told in issue number two. That was probably my second thought. After catching the saga of the Swamp Thing, my second thought was after issue one, I thought I knew where they were going with this story. No. <laughs> and then this yeah. one and – and I mentioned last time, like right off the bat, like in the first couple pages, they get him out of the swamp and they take him to a castle, presumably like in eastern Europe or something. Yeah, it's in the Balkans. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, <laughs> it's, and then we've got him fighting like you're like, like a kind of island of Dr. Moreau slash – dark sorcerer slash mad scientist type of thing. And it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't expecting that, but I still really like it. I love it. It's odd, but I dig it. Well, you know, okay. Consider this though. The final page of issue one is that night. Uh, Swamp Thing has murdered the people who murdered his wife. And as he's marching away, Arcane says, bring him to me. That's Arcane looking at him in that magic mirror thing. Mm-hmm. Bring him to me. The next day, the next morning, <laughs> Matt Cable is able to get the, the ambulance there. In the same amount of time that it took to get an ambulance to pick up these dead guys, the unmen are there. And I don't know if they're just rising up from the swamp or something, but no, they I guess they flew the plane. Yeah. But th- this is fast. All of a sudden they are there. It's just the next morning. And I don't understand why they took him to Europe other than maybe to get to that European style of, of horror story with what we're going to get in the next you know few issues. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, and so then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. What about Matt Cable? <laughs> like he's he, he loses track completely of Swamp Thing. Yeah. And I figured we'd be looking at like I can't remember the reporter's name from the Incredible Hulk TV show, <laughs> but where that reporter was just constantly dogging uh, David Banner's uh, tail. <laughs> and I thought that's what we're going to be having with Matt Cable. Nope. We're going to Europe and we're leaving them far behind. The criminals far behind. Yeah. Now we're still. OK. He's got like this this mystical mirror like Arcane does. Arcane has this mystical mirror that allows him to see across the world and see Swamp Thing and kind of spy on him. I think I would have just concocted a contrivance where, like, it's a teleportation portal or something where he can send the unmen and they bring him back or something. Like, you don't need to tie Swamp Thing to the bottom of the plane. The only reason that exists or sort of makes sense is because we do need Cable to see that. We do need him to spot the Swamp Thing taken off so that eventually he will try and follow this plane. Yeah, that does not make much sense at all. <laughs> and he's like facing down, you know, so like he's hanging from the chains, hanging from this X-shaped cross, hanging from the bottom of the plane. Practically speaking, not that I've transported a a swamp monster across international borders, but practically speaking, this does not seem the best way to maybe take this thing where they're where they're going. Plus, that's a yeah, long it, flight <laughs> yeah. from like Louisiana to the Balkans. In, in like, a twin prop plane? Like, I don't know if that could actually make it the whole distance. I think it would have to stop and refuel. And the other thing that's odd for me, and this is intentional, I don't know why. You mentioned just make it a teleportation device or something like that. Sure. But they travel on such a (laughs) low-tech thing. You know, it's just very mundane. And and I kind of – that's the one thing I like about this is it's this very mundane mode of travel to get from the States to Europe and yeah it's just this prop plane it's a it's it's made for water landing and has the <laughs> pontoons on it you know and it's but then it gets cool you know they land in a lake 
and then they float and, and they actually have this weird creature with two heads and four arms and kind of sprawling toes that come out of the torso standing on Swamp Thing's chest and both sides of this creature are rowing. Oh, it's <laughs> wonderful. It's, yeah. And it goes so like underneath he, a waterfall. and uh, But the cave of the waterfall has eyes. It looks <laughs> like a mouth, you know, and you have this mundane plane thing going on. And then you have this wonderful transportation scene when they put him on the cart. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of like uh, the witch trials or something like yeah. that, yeah. where, you know, they would have the person's tied to a stake and then on a cart that's being pulled by either people or, or horses. But here it's just this mass of unmen who are just kind of I mean, the way that they move, they almost move like they're crawling over each other and under each other. And uh, they're pushing it through these these massive caverns. And then the, the splash page on page eight. Oh, it, there was like there's so much talk about horror tropes. There are so many things going on in there. First, oh, it you is. got the unmen, these grotesque monsters, like you said, kind of crawling over each other in the foreground. They've got Swamp Thing chained to this it's not a crucifix but it's like this thing with his so his hands are spread out it's kind of like an x shape and then in the background the sort of castle frankenstein type of classic little thing lit by lightning it looks like and it's built into the side of a mountain yes it's yeah over overhanging like so that it's sort of like almost defying gravity a little bit but it just seems more ominous it's such a splash page like so much going on there like that's why that's why like when you were first saying like that it was Marvel style because I was thinking you know these unmen that's gotta be something that Wrightson just wanted to draw he's like I just want to draw like weird freaky things like this or whatever and they were like all right draw that we'll make the story around it yeah yeah <laughs> and this is the Bernie Wrightson though the, just that the mass of flesh kind of stuff that's mm-hmm. going on here and and the battle scenes are short they're very short not not a lot of panels. But just brutal looking and just not quite animalistic, but completely, you know, the Swamp Thing is is battling them as this massive, powerful being. And and they are just, you know, they are overwhelming him by numbers. And it's great. It's it's really, really I, I could wa- I, I could talk about Bernie Wrightson <laughs> just looking at like this one image we could talk about for an hour on that splash page. But it makes the book for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Len, Len Weens, he was. Uh, that's lightning in a bottle again here. You know, all of our story issues that we might have as far as how quickly things move. When, once it gets to where it's going, I'm glad to be there. Right. And, you know, I would say maybe, well, you could put the castle in the swamp you know, or something like that. But you're not going to have this atmosphere if right. it was in the swamp or even if it was in like the Rockies or, or anything like that. You know, someplace closer maybe to Louisiana. You're, you're not going to get that same mood, that same tone. You have to go to Europe to get this tone. Mm-hmm. It's just I feel like they should have. This feels like an issue five kind of thing, especially when we get to the crux of what's going to happen to Swamp Thing, having his powers taken away. Yeah, and it's such a weird like, again, that was something that I wasn't expecting when I was reading this run. And it feels like that first story from House of Secrets, that original Swamp Thing story, had that sort of old world Victorian European type mm-hmm. of horror elements. And then they completely did away with that with Swamp Thing issue one. It's rooted in America. It's got, for the time, at least more of a modern horror take dealing with science and this, you know, formula dealing with, like what you said, the espionage angle of all of these different groups wanting this formula and Holland sort of caught in the middle. And then right away they abandon that again to go back to the European thing, which will sort of dominate the next two or three issues. <laughs> but it's modern still. It's still in the modern day. 
And since it's Europe, I mean, Europe in the 70s was still like Europe in the 1870s, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it was classic. It feels right, um, even if it's not strictly speaking, you know, accurate maybe. But yeah, and I, I can forgive a lot of things because of just what it's actually giving us mm-hmm. with the story, with the the conflict. But this feels like the culmination of a conflict that had been building or something. I don't know. There's there's just something about it that everything about it just makes you say too soon. You know, we should have spent more time with Matt Cable, built up that relationship a little bit mm-hmm. and spent more time, you know, with Swamp Thing living in this body and dealing with it. And then when this moment comes here where don't you care and all you have to do is want it. Do you want it? You know, and then it's we would be, I think, more on board with Swamp Thing when he he's yes, I do. I do want it. And then when he loses it, there's because there's an element of, I guess, you know, what we're looking at here. This is second movie syndrome right here. Oh. <laughs> you know, this is Superman two. this is Spider-Man two. Uh, this is second movie syndrome where the, the hero loses his powers. But right. at the same time, um, I think if we had spent more time with him, with his powers, we would have recognized you're not going to want this to be lost before. Right before he does. Yeah, and I I picked up on that too. I was like, okay, we're doing another monster trope where the monster has to have that opportunity to go back to his to get to regain his humanity. Ben Grimm did that like every five mm-hmm. issues of the original yeah. Stan and Jack Fantastic Four run. But of course he has to sacrifice his humanity in order to save the day at the end and that's what he does. So yeah, I, I picked up on I was like, yeah, we're getting that trope again. Was, but at the same time I was like yeah, it is kind of fast, and I and again part of it is the burden of foreknowledge. I I got to this one. I was like, really, this is the first story with Arcane. This is how it goes down. It's he's gonna be a bigger deal later on. But uh, but again, like <laughs> yeah, the, these are problems when you scrutinize it. But like nothing about it like affected my enjoyment of the story because I still loved it so much. I, I'll throw this out here too. Uh, the most recent Swamp Thing miniseries. Mm-hmm. Was written by Len Wein. Is that the one with and Kelly Jones? Have you Jones had a chance? Or? Yes. yes. Have you had a chance to read it? I think I've read the first, maybe the first two issues. I know I've read the first one. Well, I hadn't read this issue in a long, long time. And then recently, like I said, I've been reading a lot more of the, the newer stuff, and I read that miniseries. And so then when I'm rereading this, Len Wein is revisiting a lot of themes. Hmm. And it comes from like this issue and last issue. And there's some very interesting similarities between the two. I'm not going to say too much more than that other than to say I would read these two issues. I would recommend reading these two issues before reading that one just to kind of see that or maybe right after like I did. There's some interesting stuff. And it's cool to see Len Wein coming back to the character. Uh, He gives it a more modern spin. He's, He's not forgetting completely things that have happened since his time. But Swamp Thing has been returned more into this Alec Holland character rather than the the uh, god elemental thing hmm. that, that we he we got with uh, the alan moore run right. and and beyond but uh so i was surprised how much he was pulling from getting back a few <laughs> little details about the story uh looking at the unmen and their first attack on swamp thing first of all i love the uh, like the leader cranius i think he's just <laughs> like this yeah nice shape in the head on a hand with fingers and everything oh, i love that so much and then and he's just barking orders yeah. and it's a cool, cool yeah. design. And then Ophidian, the snake, like the serpent one that sort of puts him into a trance. Ophidian basically means snake or serpent, but that name would actually be used later in DC comics uh, as the avatar of greed or avarice in the green lantern mythos. When Jeff Johns created the other lantern core before blackest night. Huh. 
And then on page five, the bottom panel, when they bring Swamp Thing down, <laughs> quumpsh. Yeah. I don't think I have ever seen that sound effect anywhere else. And I don't think you ever will again, unless <laughs> it is a swamp monster falling into the ground of a swamp, uh, falling into mushrooms specifically, yes. with unmen uh, swarming around his back. That yeah. is the – that sound makes quumpsh. Yep. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Um, it's nice that we do get brief glimpses again of the Conclave and Mr. E, that they didn't forget about him. I, I like that we're ending on another cliffhanger of another shadowy mystery thing that is not Mr. E in the Conclave. That is a new mystery threat, potentially, that we're going to face in the next issue. So, But I'm going to ask you to look at something. Mm-hmm. you got that panel, and you see the guy there, and he's kind of got this furry jacket thing, vest, Yep. Uh, these long, gangly arms, and then this thin hair on an angular face. Now turn back to page 11. Uh, and now this is page 11 in the story as it's numbered. It's not actually page 11 in the book, but where you see the dungeon in the mm-hmm. bottom panel there, the creature that's on the right of that panel, other than the fact that it has a sleeve, looks a lot like that creature. And it's been so long since I've read issue three, I cannot remember if that is the same creature or not. If this is one of his unmen that is following uh, Swamp Thing. Uh, I know they're going to be referencing the Frankenstein story mm-hmm. with that. But I can't remember if that's the same guy or not, and I've been holding off on reading ahead to see. But he has a very similar look. He's wearing that furry vest, strangly hair, um, but his arm is not quite as lanky. So That is a good question, and – yeah, I, I I haven't reread issue three for the next episode, so that'll be we'll have to wait. Yeah. We'll, we will find that out together. I'm I'm wondering if it even gets addressed or if it's just a coincidence. We'll see. We'll see. Well, if it's if it's one of his unmen, then I think that that is I think it'd be safe to say because these are the unmen who look more human, but mm-hmm. their mental capacities aren't as strong. Yeah. Whereas the less human ones, that's another thing we can maybe even talk about a little bit. The less human ones are the ones who act more human. They have names. That's the one thing that makes it very interesting. They're swarming over him, and they're generally speaking, they're cannon fodder, but they have names. You know, Crane, what is, whatever the Crenius, names were, Cranius yeah. and Ophidian. All of these creatures, I think they all have names. I think they all have personalities. I think that they are all individuals, and I think it's interesting that we actually get a couple names out of them. Mm-hmm. And is Cranium dead? Is you know, That's did good. he go out the window with everyone else? I would like to spend more time with them, but they just rush out the window thinking yeah. they'll follow their master. It's like, okay, that, that was a freebie for the Swamp Thing. Didn't have to fight them again. Yeah. So another thing I would mention, the motivation for Arcane, it feels a little cliche. He wants immortality, and so he wants this strong, strong body. He's This body is about to fail him that he has right now. But then he also wants revenge on the village below. And it just, he, I have unlimited power, power, unlimited power to have revenge on the 800 people who live down on the village <laughs> in the valley below who made fun of me. It feels like Dr. Doofenshmirtz kind of motivation <laughs> more than uh, like a Lex Luthor kind of motivation. Again, we're just we're just piling on. What what would a villain do in this scene? Oh, he would talk about revenge or yeah. no, he would want to live forever, even if it's in a live, not an Adonis body. No, he's loving the body, yeah. and he can talk. Yeah, he and can. Alec Holland is... asks him about that. How, how is it? And he's, oh, don't worry about it, my boy. It's just kind of part of the spell. <laughs> <laughs> but it allows him to monologue. 
and allows Alakaland to overhear and realize he's made a horrible, horrible decision. And that's my next thing I would say. Who would ever agree to make any kind of bargain with that guy? Like, just look at the guy. He is not trustworthy. He's doing everything except for, like, you know, putting his hands in front of him and, and putting his fingers together like Mr. Burns. It's pretty obvious this is not a good guy. He is creating these monstrosities. And you're going to make a bargain with him. And the other thing that I'm worried about, and I didn't remember how this all went down since the last time I read this, they're trading bodies. Like, that's what I thought they were doing. Now, they're just trading really, I think, essences maybe. Yeah, because Holland doesn't get Arcane's old no. you know, wrinkly body. He becomes young, relatively virile, and noticeably blonde, Alec Holland. And I think maybe a little stronger, more superhero-y as far as his body. I mean, he has a very – I mean, he's built. Yeah. Uh, he does not look like the uh, – you, you mentioned Ichabod Crane. He doesn't feel like that here. So he gets his end of the bargain. But yeah, I mean yeah. how can you trust someone like that? It doesn't even feel like a metaphorical deal with the devil. I think if you saw that guy and what he created, you would probably <laughs> think, no, you could just say that's a deal with the devil. That's probably the closest yeah. thing you will see in your life. Yeah. So. The last thing I have in my notes is page 21, the transformation sequence. I love this page as Alec Holland drops the urn mm-hmm. or whatever it is, you know, that, that somehow that's part of the magical ritual or whatever. And then you have these long, thin panels and it's just this this time lapse. And on one side of the panel, you have Arcane as Swamp Thing slowly transforming into his old body. And the other side, you have Alec Holland slowly transforming back into the Swamp Thing. And... You know, Bernie Wrightson is a master of action. He's a master of creatures. He's also, I feel, a master of emotional body language. Mm. And there is a lot of body language, especially for Arcane, that's going on. And it's one sentence. Uh, Arcane is yelling at him. And with every panel, he's continuing that sentence. He's saying, you unmitigated idiot. Do you know what you have done? And (laughs) it's it's wonderful, wonderful page brilliant comic book storytelling yeah the second of the it's the third panel on the page but the second of that sequence he's like covering his face and then after that Mm -hmm. he's sort of like looking down somewhat defeated and then looking uh, and he's just oh yeah but the first one he's it's rage Mm -hmm. and he's going from rage to oh no like you said covering his face and then looking at his hands and alec holland hardly any movement at all for him he's just accepting it you know do you know what you've done i know arcane i know but he's thinking it not saying it Mm mm-hmm well, for a one-two punch, the first two issues of this series, uh, I love it. It's great that these two issues are often collected. Again, do, do they flow as well together like as a narrative sequence? No, because each chapter is so drastically different from the other. But that doesn't really bother me in the slightest because, first, the art is just so, so good. Um, and it is... It's showing me things that I love to see. It's showing me swamp mm-hmm. monsters. It's showing me weird, shadowy guys with simian, like gorilla pets. It's showing me <laughs> weird monster heads, like dancing on fingers. It's showing me castles in the Carpathian Mountains, evil sorcerer, red wizard guys, and everything. Like I, I love so much of this, and it's. If there are faults in Len Wein's storytelling, I think those faults come from him leaning into kind of the the craziness of this and letting Wrightson go wild with the story, which I would do if I was in charge of it. So, yeah, 
And I guess my kind of final thought on it is they both end on a note that you would almost expect the Lonely Man theme yeah. from The Incredible Hulk to play, you know, as he's walking away and the piano sadly plays. Yeah. And it works. It, it I'll be honest. I mean, I, I'm, I'm nitpicking some of this stuff and some of it is not really nitpicking. Some of this is, I guess, elephant picking, but um, it, it works and it does the job that a book like this you'd expect it to do, which is we're going to show you something crazy and weird and horrific and with a little bit of emotion and a little bit of action. And it does it well. So, yeah, this is so much fun. I'm so glad you're having me do this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you're you're catching things that I'm not catching. So, yeah, no, I, I love talking about these things. This is so much fun. So. Episode 2, where Ben and I discussed the Swamp Thing short story from House of Mystery 92, received a bunch of comments over on the Fire and Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, we encourage you to leave a comment there and join in our discussion. If you leave a comment on the site, we will do our best to respond on this listener feedback segment, but I have cherry-picked parts from the comments for the sake of expediency. First comment came from Dial C for Comment, who said, My first exposure to Swamp Thing was the cartoon series. I was a little kid and had no idea he was based on a comic. Years later, when I was getting into comics, I went through an Alan Moore phase reading Watchmen and all of his other works. I had seen the two live-action Swamp Thing movies as well, and while not great, I love them for being fun B-movies. So my exposure to Swampy was growing. Thankfully, my library had the hardcover volumes of Alan Moore's run, all six volumes, and to my surprise, they also had the collection of the first run which included this story. That story really is my favorite. I feel no other comic had really captured this kind of atmosphere. And the art, the beautiful art, especially that cover. I mean, that was sort of like what I was saying. That was sort of my run. I mean, I knew the cartoons first and I ended up seeing the movies. Um, the first Swamp Thing comics I read were the Alan Moore run and then sort of working my way backwards. Yeah. <laughs> the art, the beautiful art, especially that cover, that's that's a pretty good synopsis of <laughs> what you can find in that story for sure. Absolutely for well sure. said. Yeah. So Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, said, I first encountered this story in the Moore run as it was reprinted in issue number 33. That cover is a nice nod to this one. And of course, Moore folded this nicely into his vision, making this Swamp Thing the one before Alec Holland in canon. I have adopted, if tears could come, they would, in my personal lexicon, said when I am witnessing something horrific, but so emotionally slash physically exhausted that I can't muster tears. I picked up the book in the pre-war days with Pasco and Yates. I looked for the early one, uh, wine rights and stuff at flea markets and have bought a couple here and there. I should seek them out. Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. And <laughs> I was going to say, uh, witnessing something so horrific and emotionally and physically exhausting that you want to say if tears could come, they would. I've felt that way for a couple months. 
So <laughs> Uh, then Ange said he suffered through the the Weichstrun. I don't know how to say that name, so I just I'm saying it with confidence. The Weichstrun longer than he should have. But Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast and your co-host on the Night Force episodes piped in to defend that run. Paul said they were the first Swamp Thing books I read and loved his twisted takes on DC Universe characters like Roy Raymond, Solomon Grundy, Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace, etc. I actually went backwards into the more and wine stuff after starting there. I haven't read any of those the books from his era. Um, that's that's a blind spot for me in terms of Swamp Thing. Um, well, no, I shouldn't say I haven't read any of them. I've read one or two sort of spotty ones, but uh, not enough to really form an opinion about the whole whole run or his style. Yeah, and I know I've read a couple, but I really couldn't tell you anything about them. Yeah, uh, it's just I have them random random issues in my collection. Uh, Rob Kelly from many shows here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network said, I don't remember when I first encountered Swampy, but I do remember one of the early Ween rights and issues was covered on Nickelodeon's video comics show. I remember marveling huh, at the beautiful moody art shot up close panel by panel and on TV no less. Seems highly improbable that such a dark series was the subject of a kid's show. But hey, it was the early 80s. Things were pretty loose back then. Uh, so Scott X actually chimed in after that. He did a quick search and found the Nickelodeon video comics episode of Swamp Thing issue one is available on YouTube. You can find the link that Scott posted in the comments thread or just go to YouTube and look for video comics Nickelodeon. It's incredible. It's fascinating. I have never heard of this uh, until this comment, but I, I had never heard, heard of it. it anecdotally, but I don't think I had ever watched any. I kind of knew that such a thing existed. Um, and I, yeah, I checked on YouTube and this is the only one that I could find is, huh. is Swamp Thing issue one. And it's, it's done it. They have voice actors sort of like doing the thing. They've got special effects. It's pretty cool. It's, it's worth, it's like 20 minutes or something. Check it out. Okay. Seeing the weird thing, though, we do have to mention then that, you know, the the love song or the laughing death of the clown or whatever from the man thing. And they, they dramatize that as a power record yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. You talk about a, a weird story for a kid's thing. <laughs> really? I can't remember the title off the top of my head right now, which I really feel stupid about. But we'll have to ask the, the sentiment yeah. is still accurate. <laughs> Robert Chris, I think, covered that on their power record show. So we'll have to ask. Yeah, yeah. Back to Rob's comment, he said, I agree with Ben's point that it was good that there's no host appearing in this story. It's so well done and the ending so perfect, I would have hated to see Mark Hannerfeld show up in the last panel making a corny joke. Mark Hannerfeld was the sort of model for the Abel character in House of Secrets. Okay. Yeah. Scott X said that he first encountered Swamp Thing in the aforementioned video comics on Nickelodeon. He then said, I got reintroduced to Swampy in the mid-80s during Alan Moore's run. I stopped reading regularly not too long after his run finished, though. I would still pick up random issues from time to time. I have had interest for a long time in reading the Ween Writes and Original Run, and your episode has inspired me to hunt down those stories, Good which enough. is easy to do, as we've said. <laughs> Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, my host on Batman Nightcast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and also co-host with Rob on Power Records, which we already mentioned. Chris said, I'll always pick Swamp Thing over Man Thing, despite the greatest comic title of all time, Giant Size, well, you know, and the awesome Power Records featuring the character. So he mentioned that one that you, <laughs> you already talked about. Uh, Chris went on to say, I first read the story in DC special Blue Ribbon Digest number nine, a secret origins issue. And even though I was quite a wiener back then, I was still fascinated by the story and enjoyed it. My next opportunity to Swampy was in issues of DC Comics Presents and The Brave and the Bold. And of course, the movie. I remember being at my grandparents' house and catching it on HBO. I felt like I'd stumbled onto something dirty. Adrian Barbeau left quite an impression. 
the animated series was really just a miniseries, as I recall. It didn't get picked up for a full season, but everyone remembers that theme. The second movie was just misguided, and the TV series was boring. I've heard it described as Swampy and Arcane being fussy neighbors who yell over the fence at each other every episode end. And then Chris said, Ben brought the goods and reminded me I need to get that Swamp Men book from Tomorrow's. Ryan, you did a bang-up job with the narration and editing, music, etc. Midnight is one of the best-sounding shows on the network. Thank you. I put a lot of work into that. Yes, thank you. He put a lot of work into that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... (laughs) Swampy and Arcane in the TV show, they really are just kind of mildly annoyed with each other. (laughs) And it's definitely not a Lex Luthor Superman kind of situation on that show. And it doesn't make sense. Their relationship doesn't make sense. And I don't know if there will ever be a more appropriate time to talk about the TV show, but I don't know if there ever really is an appropriate time to talk about the TV (laughs) show. So unfortunately, season three, they just will never appear on disc. Uh, It's disappeared. It's very, very expensive. And I don't know if I'll ever get to see the entire run of the Swamp Thing TV show, uh, but I've already seen too much. So I'm just going to leave it there. I know I have seen it, but I couldn't tell you a single plot or event or moment i just have like flashes of images uh and that's probably enough yeah it's at its best when it actually turns into like an anthology horror show Mm. and swamp thing is just kind of the thing that comes through as these other characters are having their own twilight zone type of situation happen and swamp thing is just a part of that when it's arcane is going to do something evil and swamp thing has to stop him it's really not great really not great it never is great let me put it that way it never is great but it works just fine as background noise while I'm working on like a PowerPoint game for kids <laughs> or something like that. So, All right. Yeah. Well, it's found its purpose. <laughs> Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial said, I think the heavy shadows are to blame, but the bit of triangular design over Swampy's nose reads like a mustache to me in this story, which I never really got before. Um... I can see it more on the cover of issue 92 more than the inside. Definitely on the cover. Yeah. Definitely on the cover. I'm peeking right now at the the inside. And yeah, no, that splash or not splash, but the big image when he's crashing through the window. It's mustachy. (laughs) It's mustachy. Yeah. Okay. Now I think the story might have been ruined for me. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm kidding. But no, that's what the thing yeah, it, it definitely I could see that. Like if you're looking at that, it's one of those things where it's like the woman or the vase. <laughs> you know, is it a is it a facial feature or a mustache? But yeah, yeah I, can, I can see it. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, "Thanks for yet another terrific episode. Ben sounds like a lovely fellow. Is that true? Are you?" Uh, <laughs> I used to be a lovely fellow until I was working on my biorestorative formula and there was a bomb planted under the table that I was unable to diffuse. And now I'm not so lovely. And every time I look in the mirror, I just remember what I was. You want to cry, but you can't. If tears could come, they would. <laughs> yeah. And that's the next part of Ben. Speaking uh, of, yeah. That's the next part of Martin's. Uh, if tears could come, they would basically tells us that Swamp Thing is less human than the vision. I'm not sure how I can use this great insight. Nice. Uh, Martin says, I started with the Pasco Yates run when it came out uh, and loved them, which isn't to say I wasn't enormously excited when a British fanzine editor pal, the late lovely Martin Skidmore, who was friendly with Alan Moore, gave me the scoop about six months ahead that he was joining DC to write Swampy. There's a great interview with Pesky Pasco about his Swampy work in the current back issue. This was current back when he wrote this back like last uh, November. You know, the one with the wonderful Phantom Stranger piece by Rob Kelly. And I do have that uh, back issue magazine and there is a good uh, there's a good uh, interview with Martin Pasco about Swamp Thing. It's good. 
I had that in my cart to order and then realized that I didn't have money that week and I've not gotten around, back around to trying to order that issue. But yeah, there's, a, there's a piece on the Swamp Thing movies and like the history of that and everything. It's uh, yeah, it's a good issue. Oh, and there's some interesting stuff with the Swamp Thing movies mm. and the relation to how it, with Batman mm. and yep. how the rights actually came around. It's cool. Siskoid mm. from the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Also hosts of many shows on Firewater Network, including First Strike, the Invasion podcast, which has covered some Swamp Thing issues that tied into the Invasion crossover, said, I'm really into rediscovering the original run of Swamp Thing, including Ween's issues, because while these were simpler times, the comics are still worthy of the horror genre, I think. Uh, recently read one of the 70s issues because it tied into our Swamp Thing Invasion coverage and was amazed by Wrightson's art there. Yeah, the issue that he's talking about, it's the one, I think it's issue nine when uh, Swamp Thing finally gets back to the uh, the barn where he was created and there's a, a visiting alien just kind of lounging there and there's a whole thing. Uh, and then, yeah, that ended up getting kind of repurposed in a different way for uh, the Invasion crossover in 1989. So, crazy. Hmm, that's cool. Uh, Bradley Null said, this story was my introduction to Swamp Thing. Like Mr. Franklin above, I read it in DC Special Number 9. To this day, the characters in that issue are some of my favorite parts of DC Comics. My favorite stories all come from Alan Moore's run. However, I prefer the transformed man to the plant god that thinks it's a man. The latter was great when Mad Wizard Moore wrote it, but normal humans seem to have problems <laughs> writing it well. It may be the writer equivalent to Nightwing's disco collar that only George Perez can draw. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably some validity to that, yeah. <laughs> Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, I don't have a ton to say about the proto-Swamp Thing story. The art and cover are nice, and the story is okay. Never had much use for Man-Thing, but I'll admit to reading a few good stories centered around him. I believe The Heap got a fair amount of play in the Eclipse revival books for Airboy, Valkyrie, etc. That is probably, and, the, that is probably the nicest compliment we can expect from Diablo Frank. So Okay, fair <laughs> enough. All right. Then I, I won't respond to that. I don't know anything about the heap stories. Is that uh, have you found? He, yeah, he does come back. I haven't read those just because there were so many, and I just wasn't that interested in in collecting that many things that I wasn't sure if I was going to like or not. Mm -hmm. So, but I yeah, he does come back in the revival uh, because he was a part of. I mean, Airboy Comics is where Heap came from originally back in the the forties, and. Well, originally he was from uh, Red Wolf or something like that, but it was a, it was these other war comics that the Heap was a part of. All right, and our final comment came from the Irredeemable Shag, also from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Shag said, Loved the coverage and insights on this unusual start to the Swamp Thing. The background and history was fascinating, and I still believe my theory about the roommates slash creators of Swamp Thing and Man Thing <laughs> getting high together and spitballing the concept. More importantly, Ben talked about his love of all muck monsters. Seriously, Ben? Not one mention of the Ultraverse Sludge character? I don't even know you anymore. You are dead to me. You might as well be wearing a gold bracelet. To that, I say, the gold bracelet is gone. I look down at my wrist, <laughs> and there is nothing there. I mean, what can I say? I missed it. I, we were talking about early Swamp Monsters, though. Sludge, Sludge is later on, and is a fantastic follow-up to the Man-Thing run that Steve Gerber did, but it's a Completely different character, and yet the same. Th you can totally see, hey, Steve Gerber, why don't you recreate one of your greatest characters? And Steve Gerber saying, uh, okay, but I'm going to try and do it as different as possible. And it works. It is it is different. Different kinds of stories, different kind of character, different kind of sludge creature. But I must hang my head in shame for not mentioning, sure. All I can add to that is the Ultraverse sounds fascinating, and I wish somebody would do a podcast about it. 
Okay, so now we're just twisting knives here. <laughs> that was equally meant for you and for Shag and David Ace Gutierrez. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, that is all of the comments that we got for episode two. And that brings us to an end of this segment, which means we will bid adieu to Ben for this time. But Ben, besides this routine feature on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, where else can people find you on the podcasting sphere in this realm? There are a few different places you can find me. Um, my biggest podcast right now is, and, and the one that takes the most of my time, is Welcome to Level 7, which is a weekly podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but then all the Marvel movies. And we're trying to get in, when we can, get to the Netflix series episodes as well. Um, you can also find me at Comic Book Time Machine, comicbooktimemachine.com, where I talk about a variety of different comic book things with a couple other co-hosts, primarily uh, the Star Wars era of Marvel's licensed comic books. So it gets into 2001. Uh, Micronauts is coming up soon. Um, I've gone through Human Fly. And you can also find me on uh, Strangers and Aliens, which is a podcast about Christianity and sci-fi and fantasy. And then you can just find like some of my comics and stuff like that. So my work at BenAvery.com. And yeah, if, if you look at some of my work there, the one thing you might find interesting, if you like the swamp thing and, and these horror kind, kind of things, is all the work that I've done with an artist named Tim Barron. And all of that work was done Marvel style, where he drew it and then I scripted it from his artwork. And but it's just crazy monster stuff. And we have uh, had a lot of fun. And there's one book in particular that I'll talk about next time because it does tie into the shadowy figure from issue number two. But um I'll, I'll just tease that right now and, and leave it there for now. So. That's awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and, folks, the next time Ben is on the show, we will be talking about Swamp Thing issues three and four. Really looking forward to that. Ben, thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun, and I really appreciate that. Um, first of all, you're having me on it to talk about it, but then also give me the, the excuse – or the maybe excuse isn't needed, but you're giving me one anyway to go back and read these. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks. All right. I know I don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to mention one other thing about Bernie Wrightson and then address the people who liked the last episode on Facebook and Twitter. When I talked about when and where I first discovered Wrightson's work, I forgot to mention his illustrations for the Stephen King novella Cycle of the Werewolf. I read this story after seeing the movie Silver Bullet, which is a very loose adaptation of the story. Anyway, Wrightson provided images for the novella that scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. His werewolf looked so savage and so evil. Just, man, man. Anyway, moving on. Episode 6 of Midnight the Podcasting Hour received Facebook likes from Al Sedano, Jeremy Gunter, Martin Gray. Matt, wait, 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 don't. I'm not done. Don't play me off. Stop. Stop ringing that bell. Ah, screw it. I'll just do this next time. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, 
Have a good midnight.